All right, I know you guys just sat down, but we're doing Sunday morning aerobics. I'm going to ask you to stand back up if you can for the reading of the word. I will be reading from Acts chapter 17. Actually, I'll just be reading the whole chapter. Um, so when you got it, say so. Oh, man, that was so quick. All right, I'm going to go ahead and start. Acts chapter 17. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis sorry, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see what Paul see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epusarian and Stoic others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the, and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know that what they mean. Paul then stood up in the meeting of, of the Oropagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with instructions to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very things you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by humans' hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far away from any of us, for in him 
we live and move and have our being. As some of our own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offering, we should not think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everybody by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers and believed. Among them was Dinois, a member of the Arapagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. All right, you may be seated. I know that was a lot. But today, Bishop has been, Bishop has been going over the series Defending the Faith. And let me just make sure this thing works. Perfect. All right. Um, faith and physics. Uh, before I even dive into what I have, I need to sort of preface everything today. Um, the culture that we live in today is extremely scientifically driven, right? Everything, where you're sitting, the air you're breathing right now is conditioned with science the list goes on, the way those chairs were structured, technically they can't even leave the factory unless they have a certain factor of safety and handle a certain amount of weight. There's science in that. The list goes on, right? And it, it, it's gotten to the point now where science, to be honest, has become some type of religion. And from a scientific point of view, this ends up becoming an issue. Just not even looking at it from a biblical worldview, but just from a scientific point of view, science being a belief actually is a problem for science itself. And when Bishop started this series and I was approached and asked to come up here and, and preach on something, um, really the only thing I can think of is, you know, I've I'll be going, going over who I am in a bit, but I've spent years in the scientific community really being the oddball out with the one that's being Christian. And what's funny is there are scientists who dislike other scientists because they're not actual scientists. They like to read into the science, so to speak. So what I hope to get out of today, and it's going to start off sounding like a lecture more than it is a preaching, um, but what I hope that you guys get out of today is how science and faith work together, right? Science isn't, and you will hear this over and over, if you're a Christian, you can't believe in science, right? There are some people who will go to those extremes, or you'll see people who say, well, based off this new modern science, we have a new way to interpret the, the scriptures, a new way to interpret how events happen. Even that's a stretch. Or the flip side, where you're a Christian, and then you have to take the Bible and interpret what science is saying. But when you actually know the definition of science and why it exists, it starts to become very, very clear how the two work together. Before I jump into that, I need to introduce myself. I know most of you guys know who I am, but so I can give some credentials to the backgrounds as to why I can talk about science. Um, I have a bachelor's of science in aerospace engineering. Um, all of these were taken at UCF. I have a master's of science in thermal fluids. 
I have a professional master's of applied physics. I have a doctor of philosophy in mechanical engineering and aerospace sciences. I did a specialty after that, after my PhD, in combustion physics, optical diagnostics, fluid science, thermodynamics, and technology transition. You don't have to know what any of those words mean today, I promise. But um, after I, my, I finished my specialty, I did three years of fundamental research um, experience, and then I did five years of applied research experience. To put fundamental and applied into perspective, when you're studying fundamental science, basically you're like at the molecular level, the fundamental things, the laws of physics, the laws of thermodynamics, those are the things that you're studying. When you get to the applied side of things, in the case of my line of work, we're building missiles with that. So on top of that, I'm also a research and development business owner and a DOD contractor. So I also know how science can make you money. And it makes you quite a good bit of money. So that is who I am. And I just wanted to put that out there. So when I go talking about science, I've been through it all, right? I've, I've been in discussions, and I've also brought up a biblical worldview in interpreting science as well. And I've also made the mistakes of reading into science and how that works with the Bible as well. But before we do anything today, as Christians, right, because I am in church and I am, I am preaching today, as Christians, you guys also need to understand your own fundamentals. So the fundamentals of Christianity. And as I go through these, each one of these points, the church has split on every single time. The inerrancy of scriptures, basically the scriptures cannot be wrong. Point number one, the church has split on. And there are two main bodies of Christian because of point number one. We have what we call fundamental Christians, and we have what we call liberal Christians. So fundamental Christians believe that the scripture is inerrant. So if modern science comes up with something that could, let's say, disprove what happened in the Bible, liberal Christians are going to say, well, we need to reinterpret what the Bible is telling us. Whereas fundamental Christians will say, nope, what the Bible said is what it said. We have to stick with it. Right? You have the same thing with our Constitution here in the United States. You have people who like to loosely interpret things, and you have people who like to say, hey, this is what the, con uh, this is what the Constitution said, so we got to stick to it. Right? Same thing when you write up a contract. It's not, um, it's, it can't be um, decided on just by the person who wrote the contract. When you go to law, uh, when you go to court, it can be interpreted either way. So, inerrancy of Scripture. The other thing. Virgin birth of Christ. And this also splits the church, believe it or not. Um, there are many sects or cults or different denominations who say the way, you know, the virgin birth actually happened. And some claim that it really wasn't a virgin birth, but so on and so forth. But again, that's still a fundamental point of most of the denominations. Substitutionary atonement of Christ, everyone agrees on this. This is the cornerstone of Christianity. Basically, we sinned, we're at fault, we can't fix ourselves, so someone need to, needed to be there as a substitute for God's wrath, right? Everyone agrees on that one. The bodily resurrection of Christ, another one that there's a lot of debate on. 
Well, without that, there really isn't Christianity there. One Trinitarian God, again, many splits, right? Some people believe there's actually three beings in one God race. Some people say there's one God, but three parts to him. But overall, everyone agrees that there are three parts. And I'm being very, um, how do I say, objective in presenting this, and I'll start the preaching later where I have all my own biases um, in there. Justification by faith. Basically, we can be forgiven, right? Life after death, we are eternal beings. Communion of the saints, we are a body. Basically, I am not all of Christianity. We are the body of Christ. And this is where science really starts to split things up, the authenticity of recorded miracles. Because more often than not, those are really tough to explain to people how they happen. So this is the fundamentals of Christianity. And because we're looking at science, and we have to admit it, as Christians, we're looking at science from a biblical worldview. We have to understand where our own fundamentals lie, right? And without those fundamentals, we can't even begin to interpret what science means. The fundamentals of science, because I believe in science. (laughs) Um, It's systematic. Science is the method of which we use to observe and experiment to explain phenomena of the natural and physical world, ergo the very famous scientific method. You observe, you deduce, you hypothesize, you experiment, and that is it. You guys are all scientists, whether you like it or not, right? From your birth, growing up, what are you doing? You're observing things. Based off those observations as a kid, you're deducing what those things mean. All of a sudden, next thing you know, you're running experiments, whether you like it or not, that's what you're doing, and you grow up to be who you are based off your experiences. Each one of those experiences is an experiment that you decided to conduct. Science has to be repeatable, and this is extremely important. It must be repeatable. Here's where the problem lies with repeatability in science. Nowadays, to make breakthrough discoveries, you need a lot of money, which means once they make these discoveries, it's not like I can go in my garage and repeat it because I don't have, you know, $30 million equipment to repeat the same exact study. But science must be repeatable. Science must be complicit, not a priori. And when I say complicit, complicit means that it has to agree with the discoveries of the past. It cannot disagree with it. The only time it can disagree is if prior evidence provides sufficient data to prove previous observations to be false or misinterpreted. And when I say it can't be a priori, a priori represents reasoning or knowledge stemming from theoretical deduction rather than observation or experimentation. And to put it into perspective, a big, big debate, right, always has been, always will be, evolution. Evolution is what we call a priori science, right? We have not been able to conduct any observable experiments to prove that evolution is how things happen, right? The Big Bang, same thing. As many simulations as astrophysicists can run, and as, much, as many articles as you can read on CNN and Fox News that said the scientists figured out how to run time backwards and you know, show us the Big Bang, it still has not been observed 
according to science has not been observed. So those theories are what we call a priori. Basically, we're taking the fundamentals that we know, one plus one equals two, and we're jumping from that all the way to evolution. All right? I promise this is going to get a little churchy and not so lectury, but stick with me. Stick with me. Science must be objective, which means there is no bias. Oh, yeah, I heard a whole bunch of yeah rights. <laughs> science must not have any bias. This has always been a tough subject in science, even in my own science and my own work, as many breakthrough scientific studies are geared for technological advancement and some form of socioeconomic gain, leaving other fields less explored due to lack of resources and funding. Because let's all be honest, science makes money. All right, it has to be objective. And it has to be fundamentally universal. One plus one equals two here, and on Mars, one plus one also equals two. And at the end of the universe, one plus one still equals two. Now, some might argue that one plus one may not equal two depending on where you are, but that's where, you know, theoretical math comes in. But it's not scientific math, right? It's still theory. All right, so that, that is the intro there, right? We got our fundamentals of Christianity, and we got our fundamentals of science. Now, how do these go together? The first question you got to ask yourself is, is the Bible scientific? All right? Before you can answer, you have to first know how to interpret the Bible, all right? Hermeneutics, and again, this is all very, like, luxury, but it's the principle and methodology of biblical interpretation. And within hermeneutics, you have what we call literal interpretation, moral interpretation, allegorical, anagogical, and eisegetical. All right, I'm going to make these sound very, very simple. Literal means you read the scripture, it says what it says, right? Moral is you read what we call reading out of the text or exegesis. Basically, based off what I've read, I can understand what a true moral compass looks like, right? Allegorical. Allegorical means, let me get a good definition here before I put my own. It interprets the narratives as having a second level of reference beyond those persons. This is like prophecies or foreshadowing of events from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Those are just some examples, right? Anagogical, now uh, this is where things get a little tricky. This is sometimes referred to as a mystical interpretation. Basically, this is where a lot of the descriptions of what the afterlife looks like, and this is also where a lot of the science comes into play and the interpretation of science in the Bible is they kind of hang around this mystical thing, right? When fire came from the heavens and fell down on the earth, they try and explain that scientifically as, you know, I've, and I've seen some crazy stuff where people say, like, there was a solar flare from the sun just in that one moment, and everything just worked out perfectly, and God planned it. I mean, the list goes on. Eisegetical. Believe it or not, a lot of Christians hang around eisegetical, and that's where you don't want to be. That's the opposite of reading out. That's reading into. Basically, you're coming to the Bible with your own bias, Right? Let's say uh, I want to tell Pastor Aldo that he can't wear them, those gray shoes. So then I go into the Bible, and I start 
looking for areas where gray shoes or gray footwear is bad, right? And then I bring that up and I do a whole preaching on it, right? That would be super crazy example of an eisegetical approach to uh, interpreting the Bible. The last thing that we need to know is that the Bible, well, the Bible is biblical, right? The Bible reveals Christ. It doesn't reveal science. And this is where a lot of people start to debate and fight. And I've been in many arguments right there on that point, that the Bible reveals Christ, not science. Now, I'm not saying the Bible doesn't have scientific facts, but the Bible, from a historical standpoint, it's an ancient book. And Paul, the apostles, Moses, they don't have modern science. Now, they have their, you know, divine inspirations as they're writing, but ultimately, they don't have the modern science we have. And they're not trying, even when you step into their shoes, they're not trying to be scientific. What are they trying to do? They are trying to portray the wonder, the glory, the awesomeness of God, and ultimately, the fact that he offers a path to salvation. The Bible is biblical. It's not scientific. But it does have some science in it. The reason why that point is important is because if you try to stand on the Bible as a scientific standpoint, even I, and I love doing this when people stand on the Bible as a scientific standpoint, I love, as messed up as it sounds, tearing them off their pedestal. Because as a scientist, and as much as I read the Bible, as much as I love it, as a scientist, I do not go there for my fundamental physics uh, equations and for my understanding of optical diagnostics. It just doesn't help, right? It really doesn't. Like, the speed of light is not calculated in the Bible. And I've seen people make inferences into the Bible of where the speed of light is in there. And they jump around verses, and they count, and they do all this math, and all of a sudden they end up at the number. But I can do that with any book. If the Bible is scientific, right, then Dr. Seuss's um, Green Eggs and Ham is scientific. And I can make that argument. And this is important because we can't move forward in a society filled with science where you got science in your, and literally in your pockets if we don't understand this point. The next one. We'll flip the script. Is science biblical? And I pose this the same exact way. Before you can answer, you must first know how to interpret. Science is a belief of absolutes, not theories. Science, like I mentioned before, is a method. To believe in science is not necessarily to believe in evolution or the Big Bang but to believe that the scientific method provides universal truth that explains the world around us. Evolution and Big Bang have not truly been observed or experimentally proven and thus are a priori and not scientific. And this one is also super important with COVID-19. And I am sure 2020, everyone was reading the science. Everyone was looking for that next thing. And I, 
Every time you would go to, go to work or you're on that Zoom call, someone's like, oh, did you hear this new report about, and I, I, I did some work in the, um, in, in the COVID field, um, designing masks and stuff like that, um, and some, some stuff for the army. But um, there was a person that literally told me that if you sneeze, the sneeze particles go all the way up to 22 feet. And I was like, that is insane. 22 feet, they're like, yeah, social distancing, six feet is not enough. So you know what I did? I went and I did an experiment, right, as, as scientists do. And I was in the lab with a very, very high-powered laser that can literally ionize dust in the air, right? And we had people sneezing into it. And you know what we found? That we couldn't see anything past four feet. So I'm like, how, is these, how are these people saying that this stuff travels 20 feet? He's like, well, I ran a simulation based off some math or whatever, and we found that it goes all the way up to 20 feet. And then, I'm, you know, as a scientist, you ask for their, you know, let me see your numbers, right? You go through it all, and I was like, dude, I can make this happen with anything. At this point, I can make, like, my breath go 22 feet, right? Um, but it's not until you actually sit down and observe things. So the 22 feet technically was like a theory based off whatever math they did. And again, it's just a belief of the method, right? I didn't necessarily believe what they were telling me was true, but I do believe in the scientific method, and that helps me get to that point. Science is an explanation. From a non-biblical worldview, Science can be and is used to explain the events of the Bible with increasing accuracy. And where it fails, either the science does not yet exist or it's an impossibility due to an author's exaggeration to drive a point home, right? From a non-Christian perspective, that's what science does. And we can use science from a non-Christian perspective to prove what happened in the Bible was true or to say, yeah, this is just author's choice in depicting how fire fell from the sky, right? But... Um, from a non-biblical worldview, we are also bound by the laws of physics, right? But what cannot be explained, we must decide for ourselves with the knowledge we have. And here's what happens if you only rely on science, right? As someone with only science as a tool, and all I can do is take the modern science that I have, and whatever it doesn't answer, I have to fill those gaps, I have to. It's how we live. To put this in a very exaggerative perspective, scientifically, I can't prove that murder is bad. What I can tell you is that murder has some psychological consequences. I can't tell you that lying may have some psychological consequences, but I cannot make the this, this statement that scientifically, Murder is bad. Because murder is bad is an a priori statement. It's a moral statement. Which leads me to my next point. Science is not morality. And here is where basically this big fight between atheists and Christianity and evolution and Big Bang all come into play, right? Because when, the, when as a Christian, you try and step into the science realm and say, this is how I know the Bible is true. I got undeniable proof that the Bible is true. To be honest, you're in the wrong arena. 
right? Because that's not where you're coming from as a Christian. You're coming to reveal Christ. And the one thing that you have as a Christian that scientists do not have is a description of morality. Science can't explain that. As much as they try to and as much as they try and throw statistics at you, to be honest, statistics and scientific discovery is all up for interpretation as to what it means. The last thing, science reveals absolute truth as it pertains to natural phenomena, but not biblical truth. Ergo, science is scientific, right? That's it. There's really nothing past that. Science is scientific, and the Bible is biblical. Nothing you guys probably did not know. But those are, I'm not going to say two opposite ends of the spectrum, but those are just two different spectrums, right? Science and the Bible. So, faith versus physics. And this is where I actually start preaching here. Um, in reality, between the two, there's no tension, right? There really isn't any tension. There really is no argument between faith and physics. And, and that's the problem. We sometimes sit there and say, well, science says this, but it's proving the Bible wrong. Well, absolutely not. Or the Bible says this, therefore it's proving science wrong. Absolutely not. Either way, there really is no tension between them. When you look at their definitions, Bible, the Bible reveals Christ and science reveals absolute truth of natural phenomena. If anything, what you're doing with science is discovering the mind of Christ. I mentioned earlier that from a scientific worldview, you're bound by the laws of physics, right? From a biblical worldview, you're also bound by the laws of physics. But who created physics? From our point of view, God created them, which means he's not bound by them, right? So it really is and always has been faith and physics. What we learn as we become a more and more scientific society, is that our discoveries really give us insight into God's amazing mind. And what that allows us to do is continually search his word. And the other thing that we need to know is that the science that we, or the science that we actually defend against is eisegetical in interpretation. Now, Typically, you don't use the word eisegesis or eisegetical for science, but this is what actually happens, right? The science that we fight against, the science that we always find ourselves defending against in the, in, in the, Christian, in the Christian realm from a biblical world point of view actually is not science. It's just an interpretation of science, right? How we came from Homo sapiens is an interpretation of science. How the Big Bang happened, how COVID-19 came about is an interpretation of science. And the list goes on. But in actuality, the fundamentals of science go hand in hand and explain the beauty of Christ. Now, I was reading from Acts 17 earlier, and what you see is Paul going hand in hand with the Jews and with the Greeks. He starts off in the, in, in the synagogue in Thessalonica 
trying to prove, I don't even say trying to prove, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's cast out. All right? And this is, this is really important. Proof doesn't equal belief. It's, I can prove to you that one plus one equals two. And if you want to deny it, deny it. There's no such thing as undeniable proof. Because I can deny whatever proof you show. Because I just personally don't want to believe it. So, proof doesn't equal belief. But what happens, right? He then, Paul ends up in Berea. And while he's in Berea, he does the same thing. He goes to the synagogues. He starts preaching. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, we never looked at things this way. Right? Proof ends up becoming a necessary building block of faith. And there is a lot of debate on this one. Whether faith is some blind commitment to a religion or to a God. But in reality, I have never met anyone that has come to faith blindly. If that was the case, to be honest, you'd have to be doing that at birth. Because at birth, you literally have absolutely no conception of what is going on around you. But as you get raised, you're experiencing the world, which means you're gaining more and more evidence. So by the time you come to faith, you have some type of standpoint that helps you make your decision. Proof is necessary. It may not equate to belief, but it is necessary. Without us having proof that Christ was raised from the dead, we don't have Christianity. Without Christ dying on the cross, we don't have Christianity. Without proof of that, we don't have Christianity. I mean, I can tell you I believe in the tooth fairy, but if I don't give you proof, then I can't hold you accountable for not believing in it, right? But if I showed you proof that the tooth fairy exists and you decide to deny the tooth fairy exists, that's on you. That's your fault. You'll be missing out on all them quarters, right? I'll, I'll take your quarters for you. And it's the same way that we hold the world accountable for what's in the word of God because there is proof. So when we reach out to our neighborhoods, when we reach out to those around us, when we reach out and show them proof, they don't have to believe it, but now they, they are held accountable for what we've given them. And what you see in Berea is that the Bereans approached the proof with humility. And when you approach proof in humility, what did the Bereans do? They searched the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. And this is important because this also flips the script for science, right? As a Christian, I can come up, to, you know, a scientist can come up to you and say something like, we got proof that Jesus actually didn't even exist, right? And all of a sudden, if you take it as face value because you're not a scientist, you can just say, okay, well, I guess that's it. My religion's done. Right? And there's two options. You can approach it in humility or you can approach it in pride. Right? If you approach it in humility, what do you do? You'll search the scriptures. You also search the science and you'll find out that that was just 
a really, really bad misinterpretation, right? If you approach it in pride, you'll try crushing the other side. But proof requires humility, both on our part in delivering it and both on the part of the other in accepting it. Because if not, you won't be able to search the scriptures. Now, let's fast forward in Acts 17, right? He's now in Athens. And in Athens, they are like, at this point in time, the scientific authority in the ancient world, right? These guys got it all figured out. Copernicus was there and like literally calculated the circumference of the earth with some stone tools by, I think he was off by like 7% way back then. Dude was amazing. Like this, this, is the, this is the area where Paul is at. And he's looking at all these guys and he says, you know what? I'm going to preach Christ to these guys. And these guys got everything figured out mathematically. They're the, they're, the, they're the kings of their day. They know it all. They're the tip top of the culture. And even they are like, let me hear more about this. And this is what I love about true scientists. True scientists are actually very, very humble people. Very, and I've met quite a few that I respect quite a bit who one of these days I hope to see in one of these seats. But um, they're very humble. And ultimately, truth requires a response, right? As you're preaching the gospel, as you're out there searching the scriptures, it is going to require a response from you and from the people you tell about it. What that response looks like is totally up to the individual. But ultimately, it does require a response. You can't run away from it once you have the information. Here's where things get very, very tricky. More often than not, we tend to focus in on being right. And... In um, Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. More often than not, as Christians, we are trying to prove a point, especially in the world of science, and anything, really, to be honest. Uh, when you're, you know, debating Christian beliefs versus Hinduism versus um, uh, Sikhism versus any religion you want to put out there, right? More, more often than not, we're standing there to be right. We want to make sure that we're right and the world knows that we're right, but ultimately that's not the case. We have to be there to spread the word and the glory of who is Christ. And the same thing comes to science, right? I'm not where I'm at to try and be right. I'm not trying to tell all the people in my laboratory that, hey, I told you Christ did that, right? I'm not an I told you so Christian there. And to be honest, I used to be. And I got a, a lot of my first, actually my First thesis got rejected because I put Christ in there. And I was offended. I wanted to take it all the way up the ladder, right, because I had a Christian interpretation of science that 
other people didn't like because they didn't believe in, in Christ. Oh, man, did I get the slap down from people who were not Christian at all. They were like, listen, we're not saying, and I remember I sat down with the dean. He's like, no one on your committee is telling you that you can't be a Christian. All we're saying is, is that what you're trying to extrapolate out of the science is really far out there and does not prove any existence of a supernatural being of any sort. But, I mean, what I did discover really helps me explore the amazingness of Christ. But I try to pull that out and really just shove it to the world and say, look, science proved Christ. But Christ, God, the Holy Spirit, they don't need science to prove that they exist. They exist. It says in Romans that the wrath of God, oh, sorry, wrong, wrong verse. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Since the beginning, he did not need science to prove that he exists. It's all around us. We don't stand on a pedestal of trying to be right. We come from a place of love and wanting to spread the gospel. And when I first started putting this together, man, I wanted to drop so much. When I got asked to put this together, I wanted to bring in all of my work and my dissertation and explain to you all these cool numbers. And then I realized, what are you guys going to do with it? Right? I don't know what you guys would do with the theory of tomography and how that explains um, how our world is actually four-dimensional instead of three-dimensional. Right? I don't know what you guys would do with that. I absolutely have no idea. Um, but what I did realize is that over the years, and I, I thought actually oh, just over a few years ago that I had rejected science and I was only using it as a career, right? But we're all placed, and this is really my driving point here, we're all placed where we're at because there's something that you guys can offer that no one else can. I don't work where you guys work. Right? And I have a lot of people tell me all the time, you're the smartest guy I know. I'm like, no, no, I'm definitely not the smartest guy, trust me. But my accolades, my PhD, my master's, all that stuff, it means absolutely nothing. If I cannot use it to spread and reveal who Christ is to that community, wherever it is that you are, your talents, your skills, Use them for the glory of God. You don't have to be a scientist to defend against some misinterpretation of science, right? I know this because I've had scientific discussions with Bishop way back in the day, and he was like, nah, bro. I, I, I've had plenty of discussions with Bishop where he's just like, I don't think you're looking at it the right way. Because I'm coming from my, my science standpoint, trying to push science onto the Bible, when in reality, that's not needed. But whatever it is that you are, your talents, your abilities, your skills, that is your defense, right? Your experiences is your defense. You don't need math. Same way you don't need to understand hermeneutics exegesis, eisegesis, all that stuff, or know how to read Greek or Latin to really 
get the best out of the scripture so that you can truly understand the word of God. Guarantee you, most of you guys will never read Latin, right? And you might hear some Greek words on a Sunday when Bishop decides to say one or two. But that's not a requirement for you to experience a relationship with him. Matter of fact, in ancient times, people could barely read, yet they experienced a relationship with him. So modern science is going to keep progressing, but the Bible isn't falling behind. That's not what's going on. Science is just discovering more and more of the intricacies of God's creation. And the same thing stands where you're at. What you get to discover more and more in your careers, with your talents, with what you want to learn, is the intricacies of God. Of Christ. So, um, I'm going to be honest, this is the first time I've done anything like this. So, um, ultimately, like I was mentioning, our goal is just to reveal Christ. But to do that, one crucial point needs to be said. You have to be in constant preparation, Right? When I'm telling you where you're at in life, your, your, your abilities, your talents, your career, you don't get to be lazy with it. We have to be in constant preparation for our mission. We have to be constantly seeking Christ for our mission. Without that, the next scientific breakthrough is going to all knock us off. And we're all going to just throw our hands up and say, I don't know what I was doing for eight years of my life when I was trying to be a Christian because this scientific breakthrough just totally threw all that out the window. But if you're in constant preparation, you're always going to be ready. And in times of peace, when things are hard, you always have to be looking for Christ. It is the most important aspect. So... In reality, today, I wasn't trying to teach you how to defend against science. But in reality, I'm trying to teach you that you have everything you need already. I don't have anything else to offer to you guys. I can maybe stretch your minds a little bit as to how you should be interpreting things, but ultimately, I have nothing else to offer. When it comes to defending your faith, you have to be in your faith, right? You don't just come to Christ and then you sit here on a Sunday. You're constantly searching. You're constantly building that relationship. So my closing questions is, are your interpretations of anything, just anything, grounded in the meekness of Christ? Because if they're not, you're reading into everything. And secondly, are you in constant preparation? Because if you're just taking it easy with the Bible, if you're just taking it easy with your faith, if you're just taking it easy with your worship, the next false prophet, the next scientific discovery, the next religion that pops up is just going to throw you off for a loop. And it's really that simple. So with that, I'm going to close us. I know that's not my, normally I'm up here just like spitting fire, but uh, um, I'm going to go ahead and close this out in prayer, and uh, we will move to the next portion of service. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for who you are, 
and what you've done. Father, I thank you for always reaching out to us in love. I thank you for reaching out to us and having communion with us. Father, I thank you for your amazing, awe-inspiring love. Father, you came down, stepped out of time, put on flesh, and died a sinless death. A death that belonged to us. You took it, Father, so that we can experience your grace and your love. Father, I ask that as the body of Christ, that you humble us as we search your scriptures, that you humble us as we experience life, that we approach others from a place of humility, not a place of pride. Father, as times move on, as things get easier or things get harder, I ask that you inspire us to constantly search your word and constantly have a time of communion with you. I thank you for all that you do, all that you are, yesterday, today, and forever. In Jesus' name I pray these things, amen.